Redefined is hosted by me, Zainab Salbi, and brought to you by Find Center, a search engine for your soul. Part library, part temple, Find Center presents a world of wisdom, organized. Check it out today at www.findcenter.com and please subscribe to Redefined for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's most important about life? What is the essence of life? Is it what we do? How much we earn? How many social media followers we have? Or is it, do we live our lives in kindness to ourselves and to others? Do we live our lives in love to ourselves and to others? In nearly losing my life, I was confronted with these questions, and it led me to the conversations that make up Redefined about how we draw our inner maps and the pursuit of meaningful personal change. My guest this time is a woman I met in a bus from Gaza to Cairo, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Rev Angel is a Buddhist spiritual leader and a social visionary. She's the author of Being Black, Zen, and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace, and the co-author of Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. Her new audio series is called Belonging, From Fear to Freedom in the Path to True Community. The story of our encounter is one of shadows and lights, self-reflection, and the cause of living in truth. We talk about that and about how to process and use our anger, how to distinguish between our rage and our wrath, and mostly the difficult work of finding the path to belonging to ourselves and to our heart's center. I am so excited to share our recent conversation with you. Do join me. So first of all, can I call you Angel or should I call you Rev Angel? Oh, you can call me Angel. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, I you know, as I was reading and I've been following your teachings for a while now, I am reminded of the indigenous wisdom that uh, talks about how we are all mirrors of each other. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I had a teacher, a Basque uh, shaman teacher, uh, Angela's Arian, and she talked about how we are all mirrors of each other. There are those who are clear mirrors and those who are clear mirrors that people bring the best in you, like that you see yourself in them and you always get energetic when you see them. And there are people who are shady mirrors and the shady mirrors are those who irritate you irks you, you know, or or people who you're sexually attracted to also their shady <laughs> mirrors, right? Um, and then they are those who are no mirrors. And then the no mirrors are people like you pass by every day and you just not notice them. You know, you just don't remember who they are. You just notice them. And the point of her teachings about the mirrors is that it's really all about ref- like we need to do our own work on ourselves, right? It's like you can't blame the person. You have to like what they're triggering in you is is uh, your work and your journey. But I, I'm starting with this because 
the more I hear you and read and listen to your voice and your wisdom, I was like, she's a clear mirror that every time I truly hear it's like you bring the best out of me. And uh, there are moments in which you say things that just tear me up. So uh, thank you for being a clear mirror. Thank you. We have several stories, several encounters with each other. And I will start with the encounter of the shadow as odd as it may sound to start a conversation with shadow (laughs) talk, you know, and that was on the bus from Gaza to Cairo in 2010. We were sitting next to each other as part of a team who are um, humanitarian and activists trying to assess and understand the the uh, the bombing of uh, Gaza and the damage that was uh, done to civilian lives. And I don't know if you remember that story, but uh, we, we were sitting next to each other and you were in pain, and we were escorted by Egyptian police from the borders of Gaza all the way to Cairo, and long drives, and the bus did not have a toilet, and they did not allow us to use the rest stop. You know, and here's my story, right? So I see my sister in pain next to me. And I remember every time they changed province, a different security guard came in, you know, and and I remember the first time I like went and I said, can you please uh, let me use the bathroom? I sort of used it on myself. I was like, oh, I need to use the bathroom. Please let us use the bathroom. And I was really nice. And they're like, nope, the government ordered that we cannot let you use restrooms. Uh, rest stops, you cannot get off the bus. And so, you know, I go back to the chair and... I'm seeing my sister in pain in here and the next stop comes and a new security groups come and take over from the last one. And I go and this time I sort of do drama. I was like, I really need to pee. I have to go to the bathroom. I have to pee. Please, please, please. I'm going to pee on myself. And they're like, absolutely no presidential orders that we are not to let you, anybody in this bus, to uh, off the bus until you arrive Cairo. Third stop, again, new security officers take over. And this time I remember my over drama. I was like, I'm going to strip naked right now and pee right now in front of you, in, in front of the whole bus. I'm doing that. And I was the only Arabic speaker, I think. I was one of the couple, handful of Arabic speakers. So I use my... my um, leverage here right and cultural leverage being someone who from Iraq and native speaker of Arabic and finally and here's the moment the fourth one I remember now I get very emotional talking about it because I then I was upset because I use kindness and then I use shame and then I use you know drama and nothing has worked and I go to the fourth security officer and I said I look at him in the eyes as he got off I got on the bus and I say I am writing your name because I know the president and the pre- the first lady, which I was bullshitting, and I will tell them what you have done to us, not letting us get off the bus. And I and your life will change from that moment. And I was scary. And in that moment, a, a, one of the other passengers took a picture of him and the guy got scared. 20 minutes later, he he puts us, he you know, the bus stops in a rest stop. Everyone gets off the bus. All what I cared is you were okay, honestly. People were taking tea and all of that. And here's the thing. That security guard comes to me. 
scared. Oh, and he tells me, please don't report me to the president. Please don't tell me. Are you okay? Are you happy? I did what you told me to. Please don't report me to the president. And I tear up, you know. It's been many years and I still tear up because I I contributed to a humiliation of a man, right? Even though I was standing up for everyone in the bus and even though I did the right thing for the bus, but I, the fact that this wrath is in me and I led to this guy being scared shitless, you know, um, it's a shadow part of me that I had to work a lot, many years on. I mean, it's 11 years later and I'm tearing up talking about it, right? Um, so my question, I guess, is, you know, and I like I worked a lot on it, you know, like how do you reconcile, you know, this our uh, the, the work on our social justice, you know, and social justice generally and and the kindness that we need for ourselves and for our lives personally, right? And then the wrath that sometimes it's, it comes out of us, you know, it comes out of me, the anger, the rage. Now, I'm not judgmental of these things except when I lead to someone else's humiliation. You know, it's, it's his humiliation that that's made me scared of myself. So my question Angel, to start with, is is how have you reconciled these things? I mean, how do you reconcile between that social change and between um, going about it in a particular way um, that does not bring the bad taste in your mouth as it had in my mouth? I really feel that, um, and I remember very well, I felt that you taking it on. I mean, and, and you remain, you know, forever nearby me, even though we haven't seen each other in so long, because it's, that is a, that you said, I don't know if you remember, but are you, are you kidding? It's, it's literally something that lives with me. And I return to often the, the entire experience and journey uh, and, and at the core of that, you know, what this, this sort of kinship and connection that, that was there and and that was part of it this it it was rare for me in my own life to have the experience of someone doing that and you know for me and as someone that has so often done it for other people and stood for other people it was both potent and i felt deeply grateful but i was processing it like in live time you know and the reconciliation for me has been through time, through practice, and, and and many times of being of having it tested and returning, of the the recollection of of the person that the person's humanity and distinguishing it from from the behavior and the activity in in time, and so I that is how I relate in general, right? Is this partitioning of the person and being able to conduct myself in a way that addresses the behavior, the action, the thing that is, that is, you know, um, that I'm charging against, you know, that I'm, that I'm, and, and that I want to bring fierceness to it. That I want to bring wrath to it at times in order to move the needle, move, move the room, you know, make, make the change happen, like tip it. 
but I want to, but I, but I need to be able to live with myself. And I made that decision a really long time ago that, you know, when you said the taste in your mouth, it's like, oh, I have to, I need to be able to live with myself to be able to abide in myself and that anything that I do has to be done in such a way that I can continue to abide within myself. And it came from some experience that I had long, long ago. And I, you know, the long story short is there was this business thing and, you know, we were going to buy the, 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 the property of this guy and his business was failing. And my business partner who had the money, I didn't have the money. The fellow offered a price. And I said, Oh, I said, Oh, that's a good price. And she said, well, we can do lower. And she, and I said, yeah, but he's, you know, I mean, this stuff is worth way much more. And, you know, and so when he said that number, it was the same number I have. So I feel good about it. She said, but this is business and you have to do what you do for business. And I said, I have to do what allows me to live with myself. And she left the business partnership and took the money with her. She threatened with it. And I was so crystal clear that all of the calamity that that brought and challenge and whatever, that, that that was the right thing for me. And I've been living through it and with it ever since. And so it's, it's really active for me. And I think it's, it's, it, as a result, it's active in how I speak about things, not from like, here's my teaching and let me tell you this, but this is, I, I want for, I want for any, all of us that want the world to be changed to also be able to live with ourselves. Like what will, what will we have changed? What is, how is it worth it? If we can't, we can't live with ourselves in it, that if the external realities, you know, shift, but we are not right with ourselves, right? And, or not, I'm going to say right as if it's fixed, that we are not being in, being in rightness, like as a process, right? Like that, that we are not in more in more rightness with ourselves. It doesn't matter what we change externally, actually. We will have objectified change and excluded ourselves from it. And, and I deserve to be a part of that change, too. That's beautiful. I mean, you said so many things. First of all, I want to thank you for, for the biggest thing I'm taking from this, which is I have to live with that taste that it leaves in me, right? I also have for myself, to that point, distinguished the use of the words. It's, you know, it's all made up in some way, but it's useful. The, the distinguish between anger, wrath, and, and rage. I agree with you. So, so for me, wrath is that constructive use, right? Anger uh, for me is like it burns, right? And it, including me. Wrath I can wield, but I can also put it down. So if I'm not- and how about rage? And, uh, and rage, I, I get this from, um, from uh, Ruth. Uh, her last name is not coming to me. It's going to come to me. Uh, Healing Rage is the name of her book, though, and um, that rage is from um, and from pre from t it's out of time. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, it's not to do with now. It's like it it's out of time. So rage is like you you brought that with you. <laughs> That's so not. It may have been triggered by the person in front of you, but it's so not about this situation, this moment, this time that it is from, from elsewhere, including from ancestors, right? It's including from your lineage. And, and so that, that rage is, um, which is, a, I think, the trickiest one, you know, because we, we can feel so 
you know, overpowered by it and strong. And, you know, those are my words. People should choose their own words. But I think having a distinct, a distinct distinction so that, you know, the, 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 the relationship we have to anger is not this, this blunt instrument of like, you know, anger is either bad or anger is good, right? Because there is a righteous wrath. There is a righteous wielding of one's passion and fierceness. And if it's burning you and everything and, and it's and, and everything in its path, you know, absolutely, what's going to be left for you to live in? I, I I'm curious about how have you handled the process of dealing with your shadow? Mm. How did you incorporate it into your work and 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 your attitude about it? Yeah, I you know I feel that I was gifted early with an experience in my life that made me contend with it maybe earlier than a lot of people have had to. I was abused when I was a child by uh, uh, by a woman that my my father was you know dating, cohabitating, whatever you call it call it with. And you know, fast forward fifteen years later, or I know uh, twelve years later or so, she was kind of removed from my life. And fast forward. I ended up in the neighborhood that that was her family's neighborhood. Um, and as I was traveling on the bus and train, I found myself just racked in like fear. And so I'm 15 and I decided that I, like I wasn't, I couldn't abide by this. Like I couldn't live like that. Like looking over my shoulder, thinking I saw this person. So, you know, there's all sorts of things about the story, but in this instance, I went to her house and I didn't see her the first time but I saw her the second time and I made it my business to forget she wasn't like she wasn't this you know whatever demon and I could see the mm, the suffering you know on her on her reality on her in her on her in her existence um, that she that her the family the home that she had lived in was basically a hell house of abuse and so on and I just, and I decided to forgive her and I, not for her, but for me, I couldn't live with the anger. I couldn't, I couldn't live, I couldn't live with, and I think it was just enough of it. It was complex enough that she was both, oh my goodness, the great reveal on podcast. So it turns out fast forward many years later, which I've never been able to say in public um, un until now, uh, turns out she was also the father, the mother of my, of, of, of a brother, which we didn't know at the time, but I suspected it. And so it was now complex. She just wasn't this other distant creature. She was close. She also kind of raised me for a time. I could see that raising of me in her children. And so it was, it was like mucky and I didn't have like a clear line of hate. <laughs> And so I couldn't live with the, I just decided, I was just like, okay, I don't have a clear line. So I couldn't just write her off. And what I was going to be left with is not being able to just write her off, just living with this turmoil within me of going, well, but yeah. And I was just like, yeah, no, I'm not <laughs> like, no. So that was the cut. It was the cut. I just, I decided to just cut, like to cut it and release myself from the, and it, and it didn't, it wasn't all neat and pretty and it did, you know, that's not what I mean, but I was liberated from the part that I could liberate myself from, which is to, to just be in all this turmoil about it. I was just like, I'm not gonna do that. We'll have to negotiate whatever else we're gonna negotiate together and through the years. 
and we continued to. But I was not going to keep myself in the, the that hell realm of, you know, whatever, you know, just being twisted about it. That's an unbelievable story. And, and because it's so wise for a 15-year-old kid. Because that's, that's, you know, whatever you want to change in the world at the end of the day, the only real dominion we have is the dominion over ourselves and, and how we live. And if, we, if, we, if I do all the things that I do um, and, I, and I change everything and I can't abide, by my, abide within myself, what does it matter? And on the other hand, if I go through everything and, and, and nothing seems to be externally changed, I can't put my finger on what I changed, but I can live with myself in all the directions of my effort, the direction of my effort, the direction of my failures, the direction of my learning, the direction of like the hopes that I had that didn't actually come to fruition, but also that, but the direction that, but I chose to live in love. That is the greatest change we can make. I know that doesn't stack up on statistics, but that is the greatest change we can make because we will have, we will have, um, I, I, I love to say we will, we'll, we will have disobeyed the instructions of the oppressor. And, and as, as long as we do that, even if we can't see the things changing right in our space time, that is the greatest, most continuous change, the most sustainable change we can possibly have. It takes a lot of discipline, huh? It takes a lot of discipline to stay in that love because it's it's an easy slip, you know, to go into into the anger, into the rage. You know, it's, it just takes a lot of discipline to go about the change but stay in the core of love. Have you ever slipped? And what do you do when you slip? Oh, well, I want to tell about my little shadow side too. So I... <laughs> My my shadow said, like I remember, which you actually know. I had the um, I remember I was in a you know relationship many years ago, and um, by this time, like I've I had that whole experience, and by this time, you know, I was attuning myself to this sense of, you know, being aware when I wasn't like in on, like honest with myself, right? And that's that I call that like that abiding with myself. And so if you have a practice, if you develop a, a practice of abiding with yourself, of returning to yourself as kind of the seat of where you live, like the seat of where you live, like live here, I live here. I live out there, like that all happens and I engage in the world, but I live here, I, I, I abide in myself. What happens is you also <laughs> become very, very familiar with when you're bullshitting yourself and maybe nobody else knows, you know, and I have a lot of practice. And so with a lot of practice and I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of like, um, my temperament is one that a appears stoic to people anyway. And I, I can drop into that, you know, very quickly. I'm, I'm gonna, y'all can't see me on the podcast, but I've got the like Jedi thing, right? It's just like immovable. I can, and so I can roll with that. So I have to be the greatest arbiter of bullshit with myself. I've made that, I've made that bullshitting myself intolerable though, right? By that returning to myself. And so I was in this relationship and the, the, the person I was dating at the time said uh, something about like, <laughs> of intimacy issues. And I was like, I do not. And I gave all of these very, very like, I mean, they were just lovely arguments and flipped it back on her, you know, all the things. It was so good, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and in my body, it was like, <laughs> right? I just felt like, 
when I'm trying to therapist. <laughs> wow. Right? Wow. Yeah. So we, we actually have to make it intolerable. That's the practice, right? That we have been habituated to tolerate the, the, the enormous amounts of pain, enormous amounts of suffering, you know, uh, communicated and, 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 and imposed upon the world on people and peoples in our name. And through a, 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 a horrible genius, we have been acculturated to tolerate it. So we have to reverse it and make it intolerable. And that making it intolerable to ourselves will carry us through uh, all of the winds and storms of the, of the ways in which we, we will be pushed back against. When other people, it'll, we will go our own way because we'll know our own way. But we can only do that if we're comfortable being in ourselves. Well, that entails, you know, what you're sharing is also entails being in truth, mm-hmm. in truth to ourselves and in truth with others. And for decades, I, I worked on, I have mission statements for myself, like motos for, <laughs> you know, of apparatus for myself and mine for the longest time, and still is, that I need to tell the truth, live the truth, be the truth, my truth, right? I'm curious about your own journey because you have gone through so many trials and tribulations, right? From (laughs) your childhood, from the abuse, from the sexual molestation, from, you know, moving from one neighborhood to the other, from, you know, social justice, from racial justice, like all gender justice, sexual justice, all of that. How, what, I'm curious about the moment that you decided it's like, I am going to speak the truth. And especially, you know, I, I, my, your first time articulating that, I think in public, I'm not sure, is in your first book, Being Black. And so I'm, I'm curious about that moment that made you decide that. That moment, it, all of those moments, they, they come from the story that I shared. In many ways, the release of, uh, or, or sort of the, the way that I w- refused to live in fear then meant that I had to navigate this like unknown space and inside of that unknown space, because if it would be easy to stay in the fear, it would be easy to stay in the hate rage of the person and all of these things. And then I was left with this unknown space of, oh, and now if I have done this, I have to take responsibility for for what that means, for having decided that I'm not gonna just live in the fear. And the flip side of not living in fear is actually living in truth. And I, I think many people don't realize that that's really what it means. And, and, and that that is where the work begins because you're basically going to face death over and over again. And those that death, and what I mean death is that you're going to challenge your belonging to all sorts of spaces and places as a result of choosing to live in the truth. And so for me, that was the beginning of it. It was like, this is it. And then when I, um, the, the, I wanna say the, the first action of, of truth that was on the other side of that, of relinquishing the fear was telling my mother that I forgave the person. Like 
like getting that, like, you know, not just keeping it to my, because this had loomed over our lives as this like whole story. And it was a story of, I didn't grow up with my mother. So it was like this time that my mother came and like had my back and saved me where my father couldn't see what was happening. And so my mother, you know, came and, you know, <laughs> did something, wrong, you know, but it was a part of our belonging to each other. And so by telling my mother that I forgave her, I was challenging the belonging of my mother. And I think that truth is, and I know I've said this in places before, I didn't have words for it then, but I've come to realize that my stance in truth is actually uh, simultaneously a stance of challenging um, notions of belonging and where I be who I belong to and deciding that I have to belong to myself first. And so that in any given time and space that what we're doing, when we tell the truth, right? It's like you, you said like, oh, I'm the one that's keeping it, but why, right? Like, what are you keeping yourself from? You're, you're keeping yourself in whatever it is you belong to in a, in a family, in a, in a partnership, you know, with your lover, you're, you know, you're keeping yourself in belonging. And so once we have a belonging to ourselves, I, I call it like our own belonging, then this whole telling the truth thing becomes something that is, um, I, I feel like we're returned to an innate, uh, an innate capacity to, to like to live in, in, like live into ourselves. I love that you said live in truth. You know, like live into ourselves and live into the truth uh, rather than it, it being this thing that is, uh, that we're always in tension with. Right. And so, yeah, that's, <laughs> I've got to become a little bit, yeah, it's a little, it's a, it's a little funny because I, I just can't, I don't really abide by not truth well anymore. Me neither. I can't. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned your mother because, you know, that's the closest person. It's one thing that you, you know, someone else that's, you know, maybe a friend or a colleague, whatever, but your mother is just the closest person and that for you to deal with her, emotions how did you do that and, and I mean betrayal. I, a betrayal I mean it was, it was I know. fraught with betrayal yes and how did you deal with that maybe maybe this is the worst thing um you you have to be you have to know that you're willing you're going to be you that you are going to lose things I mean the nature of truth is that we we are the nature of conflict we conflict you know that's what human beings we try to two things anytime two things try to inhabit the same space at the same time that's conflict conflict is not inherently bad it just is and so when two truths there's not it's not a capital t truth my truth your truth when they try to inhabit the same space at the same time there is a conflict and i'm i'm always aware that i'm i'm subject to loss and if you want to hold on to law, if you want to hold on to things and not lose, you cannot tell the truth. It's so true. I, th there was a moment in my life, not so long ago, actually, where my father uh, called me and he says, you either continue to speak and you will lose my love completely. Or you stay silent and I will be your father forever. And and the speaking was I, you know, I had a it was speaking about my truth, our truth, actually, you know, in public. And so he did not want to deal with the 
the world talking about it. And and the 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 equation I had to go to with myself I was like, okay, if I get silent, you know, because and 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 keep my father's love, then I betray myself. And I saw my betrayal of myself as directly connected to betraying God. I mean, I love I'm I love God and God for me is everything and 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 like there's no God doesn't have a a form for me it's everything it's you are it's the air it's the flowers everything everything and so it's like the divine let's say you know it's like I and I and I was like so either I lose love or I betray myself and I betray the divine because that's truth for me right and I called my father I emailed him and I was like I I can't do that what you're asking me I'm I'm gonna choose to stay true to myself and he was mad at me and did not speak with me for two three months and then two three months we saw each other and he was called and lord and behold a few days later it was okay and we're now normal now how did it go with you <laughs> with you so these laws i agree yeah. with the laws and it takes a lot of courage to say I, okay i'm gonna lose i mean there's the journey towards one's own freedom in self in self is not necessarily always without loss you know so yes. how did you deal with that how did you how how did it come to a resolution with your mom well, I will just say that the journey is guaranteed, loss is guaranteed. And if you don't uh, prepare yourself for the, and reconcile that that is what is true, that it is guaranteed, that the, that the journey to living in your truth is, is you are guaranteed to have loss. When you were speaking, I was thinking uh, for myself about this situation. And my mother was, you know, she felt really betrayed. And, and, and I felt this kind of, uh, you know, clarity that, not only is was it true, I mean, I couldn't go back and undo the forgiveness, but I also had to be, I had to own the forgive, like I had to own the truth of it too. It wasn't just that I had forgiven. It was then I could have just kept it quiet, you know, <laughs> just, but that was, that would not have been true. And so telling her was in some ways jeopardizing the relationship, but it was an act of being true to own the decision that I had made for myself. And so that was being in my truth. And the way that I navigated that was, she's gonna be really upset, right? And I don't think she would have been as forthright and said that what your father did. I was like, <laughs> I just, I felt that, I felt the heat of that. But it would, it would have been intimated because I think that's what we do. We threaten people with belonging, right? It's the, it's the, it's the shape of dominant culture is to threaten people with belonging. So it was there, it was intimated. And I decided that I wasn't going to be worthy. I couldn't be worthy of whatever love it is that I would have if I wasn't in my truth. So whoever I would be, Whoever I'd, I would become in order to um, abide by some temporal idea of like love or whatever, I wouldn't be worthy of that love anymore. If I could, if I like, who was, who would that be? I wouldn't, that would no longer be me anyway. And so whoever it is that you were taking that love from would no longer exist the moment that I gave myself up, my truth up in order to accommodate your, your desire, your interest. And, and, and so I, th I just think the, oh, we just, 
we just get to be ourselves or we don't, right? Like we get to be ourselves or we don't. And then we have to bear the responsibility. And I don't say that I'm, I'm, for those of you who can't see me, I'm, I'm black, I'm queer, you know, I have a mixed, mixed heritage background. So I get it from all sides and lots of times I, I, like, I have all the things. And so, you know, I don't come from wealth. I've like had to scrape, I like, got all the things. So I don't say it lightly at all. I don't say it with, you know, um, naively about that means di really different things and tremendous impacts for different people. But at the end, at the end, end of the end of our lives, I don't think we we're going to look back and say like, oh, did I please all these people? Like, what, could I be right with myself? And and that's who I that's who I'm going to like live and die with is myself. That's not a self ishness, right? It's it's a it's a it's a being in in truth with myself, right? It's not against anyone. It's totally for myself, and that's the only person that I can be present for anyone else with. I mean, it seems for me that as I hear you, it's like, you know, we often, all of us get the, uh, the choices of freedom versus security. Now, obviously, it's ideal of the security and the freedom come together. But often that proposition is you want security and you betray yourself or you want freedom and you're true to yourself. And it seems that you have at an early age chose your freedom at an early age uh, chose the freedom to 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 be in your truth and and it's not the first time you do it i mean i i'm maybe it's the first time you do it but i remember one of the things that i'm really like dying to ask you this question is when you later on you know studied buddhism and and in your uh, second book radical dharma talking race love and liberation you talk about your teacher your teacher in buddhism and that she came from a, a very particular uh, uh, white middle class perspective in her uh, uh, in her attitude or in her teachings, let's say. I'm curious about because it's the same thing. It's about telling the truth. And you're here. You are studying Buddhism, yeah. And you're saying, uh, uh, there's another truth here. There's another truth here. Again, this is like sort of the same encounter with with mother. You know, I mean, it's it's. I don't mean to compare the teacher with the mother, but oh, the no, idea it's, it's that... Silver. <laughs> it's, it's there. Uh, yes, oh, okay. <laughs> but I mean, it's again, you then you go about and say, I'm going to tell my truth and it's different. It's different when you're teaching me. I, I'm curious about that process, Angel. How did you come about it? How did you, just, how did you find that voice in you? No, in some ways, that's, that was almost more painful than my own mother. And that's because things like your teachers or your love, like you chose them, like you didn't choose your parents. And so we have this bond that comes from, you know, the parents and you have the bond, but you, you know, you, you kind of got them. <laughs> I was chosen for you. Then you think, oh, like I'm in this adult and you, you think now that these are the decisions up to me, you kind of want the decisions that you make to be the right decisions and, you know, and then it, and then it all works out according to your plans. And then, it, and it turns out that humans are still humans and they do what they do. And so that was, that was even more painful for me, you know, partially because of my age, you know, by this time I was maybe 28 or so. You know, and, I, and so I thought I knew something, which, you know, which is worse <laughs> when you think you know something. So I thought I knew something and, and she was white. So I really 
you know, made this kind of like conscientious decision of what it meant to like have a white teacher, you know, all my politicization and so on and so forth. And so getting to that moment in where it was like, oh, this familiar control thing, I, I felt some of a sense of like betrayal of myself in it, like in the choice, you know, in having made that choice and, and, and thinking I could do that. Um, and somehow I was going to come out unscathed, you know, when it came to a time in the stories basically that I, that I broke with my, with my teacher, you know, not in some like, oh, I'm really going to break. It was really, she broke with me and I just was refusing to go along. And because I needed to be in truth with myself, it was tremendously painful. And I was lucky enough to have had the experiences that I had earlier so that I could feel that edge that you were talking about, like standing like at the edge of truth and you just don't know if you're gonna die. Um, and to have the practice of just being really still and, and taking the step into my truth. You just like, I just get, I get really still and I'm like, yeah, this is fraught with all the things. Everything is going crazy, words, you know, and I just get really still and really quiet. And one and and just step right forward into like this is my truth this is what i need to say to you and that's it and then you and then you deal with like what, what comes i it's not possible to do anything else anymore and and i think that's the best thing that we can do for ourselves is that we can develop a practice of we can develop a practice where we're being in our truth is the only thing that's actually tolerable. And, and we will fall off, fall off, by the way. So I said being in our truth, you know, returning to our truth, because we will we'll fall off all the time. That's, that's the nature of being a human. Um, but returning to it is the only thing that's tolerable. You talked a lot about your journey that got you into spirituality. You talk about, you know, moving from science uh, into seeing a, a book about uh, Zen Buddhism and you were attracted to that. But where was the moment? I'm curious about the mm -hmm. moment where he says, this is a path I'm going to take seriously. And this um, this is my oh, path. Yeah. To, that even would lead you to the, to the teacher you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, that that was, I, I, I t I've told the story. I was um, in in San Francisco. So the person I was dating at the time, uh, their mama lived in San Francisco. <laughs> and um, so we went across country and I had never been to the Bay Area. We went across country and I, I hadn't even, there was a temple, San Francisco Zen Center. And I'd found out a Buddhism and saw this book and I was like, okay, you know, and it was sort of like hovering in my space. And I was, I had developed my own little closet, you know, meditation practice like literally I was sitting in the closet with my own little meditation practice but I had this opportunity to go to the mothership if you will of the of the of where the book came from from Shinra Suzuki Roshi um, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind so San Francisco Zen Center was there I was like and here's the moment I hadn't even gotten to the temple I woke up at 4 30 in the morning on the other side of the country and didn't know really where I was going and was gonna muddle my way to get to this temple. And my partner, I looked over my shoulder and she was lying there sleeping. It was still kind of like bluish, hazy, early morning, 
she was barely more than a silhouette. And, and that moment I knew, I was like, whatever this is, whatever this is that has brought me to this moment right now, that I am doing this, that I'm taking this for me, for my background, for whatever it is, like complete leap. This is, this is a thing. And I, I knew it, I knew it right there. And I could, re I remember the feeling of being like, oh, this is a thing. And, and that was it. I, and then I went and I got my cushion and I barely remember the whole thing. I came back with a cushion and everything. And I, I don't barely remember being there. I remember that moment that you're asking about, about because I was leaving. It was a kind of home leaving. They talk about being a you know, priest as home leaving or being a monk or monastic as home leaving. I was the home, the home leaving. I had left my home, New York. I was on the other side of the country. And then I was leaving my lover, which was like my home, like it was like home, leaving the home, home. And a, I had left home, you know, going out into this like unknown, <laughs> the unknown of San Francisco. But in the unknown, at the wee hours of the morning, which, you know, at my age at that time, I didn't do that. Like, and it, so it was just fraught with all of this. <gasps> Something is happening here. And whatever this is, I think what the words for me was like, oh, this is serious. That's what it was. It was like, it was like falling in love. And you know, at that moment, oh, this is not a fling. This is serious. And I had that moment right there. It was wow. so clear. You know, I, I wonder, again, I go back to my teacher, Angela's Arian, who said, you know, he said, she said, everything about life is moves in the pad, in the rhythm of slow to medium except humans we move so so fast you know and in the early dawn hours life is quiet and and it seems that you heard you heard life's calling in that early dawn hour. it's like there's a roomy poem that don't go back to oh, sleep and yes. you know you know i i can't remember but it's just talking about that dawn moment do not go back to sleep yeah and you stayed and you stayed awake it's, and, and blessed are those who know their calling i think blessed are those who knows their calling and oftentimes sometimes i feel like if we only slow our minds yes that we will know our calling, actually, you know, that it, it, we can all access that moment if we only slow down and allow the slowness in that time to come. That, that, that is exactly true. Can I, may I say something? So my favorite line in the call to prayer is for the, for the, for the dawn oh, call to prayer yes. is don't, yeah. you know, don't go back to sleep. Don't go back, don't to, go back sleep. to sleep. Yeah. And, yeah. and it is my favorite line <laughs> and yeah. it's only done in the dawn and it's only done in that slow time of like, yeah. don't yeah. go back to sleep. I, I, I love, I love that. Tell me about a turning moment in your life, a turning point in your life that led you to your own belonging, as you said, you know, to your own arrival or to, or to your own understanding about what is most important about life. I have a autoimmune illness and I, uh, uh, a few years ago, some years ago, I don't remember now how long ago, uh, 2012, somewhere in 2012, it started to flare. And I was very, I was really very, 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 very ill. And I don't, I wouldn't say that I was near 
death, I would say that I was near, I was in a state of contending with um, all of the sort of robust vitality that I associated with myself and really banked on, you know, was, had, you know, fallen away. I could barely, you know, walk to the, to like out, out to the door. I got help moving up and down the stairs and I was lying in bed and there, you know, the, the basic idea was like, don't do anything, drink, you know, take a lot of drugs and don't do anything. Don't move. Don't, you know, harm yourself. Don't, don't do anything. If you bump yourself, if you, whatever, like everything between the drugs, between the disease itself and the drugs I was taking, anything and everything could hurt me. Everything, everything could hurt me. And it took me a very long time to get out of bed in the morning. And this had been now going on for weeks. And so it would take a really long time and I would have to like massage each joint, you know, just to move myself out of a state of pain that I was, that had accumulated from inflammation overnight. And so I just like, it would take like an hour or more to get out of bed. And, and we had regular, I lived in community at the time and we had regular yoga practice. And so everybody was sort of, you know, there was kind of like a death shadow in energy in the space as a result of this. I'm the leader of the community and I'm in this like, you know, sort of declining state and, you know, no one knew what to do. And I was lying there and I was like, oh, I was like, oh, waking up is like the hardest thing. It's like, God, I gotta like deal with like life again. And I was gonna, you know, have to like do this thing. And as I was lying there, I was like, oh, this may not be like, oh, this is gonna pass. It was just at that stage, this is gonna pass. This might be it. Like this might be, is that like, it's not about getting better. Like this might be the state that I may be this person going forward and, and maybe even decline from here, that, you know, that, I, that at that moment, it fell away that what I was trying to do was get better and kind of waiting to get better. And I dropped into, this is it. And so I rubbed my little joints and I took my ass downstairs, scary as it was, this incredibly like steep set of steps. And I went and I got on my goddamn yoga mat. And that was it. I like, I took my life. My life is, was not in some other time, state, era way of being. My life was in that very moment. And it was the only life I could live. And that was it. What I love about that story, it was not only you were in the presence of the moment, but actually it's also this is life. This life is has painful moments and beautiful moments. And oh, this is life. It's uncomfortable at times and it's utterly joyful at times, you know, and you just took it on completely in that moment. That's beautiful. And, and that's the, beautiful. you know, the waiting for it to be different was more suffering. It was like, I was like waiting for it to be different. And, 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 and that was sort of like holding life in like in this state of like suspended animation, hoping that it would be something. And I wasn't actively hoping I had enough practice. It wasn't like I was pining for this other thing, but I was waking up with this sense of like, okay, and then I have to do this to get better. And it was like, no, I just, this is the life. This is it. I have to live with this body, this experience. Um, and, and, you know, if I fall down the steps on the way down, there it is, you know, but I'm going to live. 
I'm going to live. And I, and I think that that's, if we can live in this moment rather than the moment that is to come or the moment that has been that if we can recognize that that really truly is the only moment that we have. I have last quick question, rapid questions. Yeah. And this is more to share with everyone about, you know, things you do to keep you going. So for example, do you have any favorite song that you always go to for, you know, a moment of power or a moment of joy or even sorrow? I What's do. your favorite so song? So good. So yeah. um, there's this song by a Christian group, a Christian rock group for King and Country. And they have a song called Joy. And I play that song and I jump around, usually not fully clothed, in front of my 15-year-old <laughs> African gray parrot almost every day. A prayer, a poem, a piece of art that lifts your spirit. Oh my goodness! Um, I, I have there's a there's a woman named Miani um, Carnival who uh, does this amazing work. She's in upstate New York. She's not far from Omega. That's where I Omega Institute. It was where I found her. I, I I purchased a beautiful piece of art, and it was like one of those things where you like spend more than you understand. You know what it is to spend. And I learned about I learned about the value of gifting yourself with with what moves you from from her art because I missed the first piece that I fell in love with, and I committed in that moment to never do it again, and it changed my life. And so I have this ongoing practice of gifting myself things that I love. But that that piece of art, stunning. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. How about movies that you go for either? To, for a good cry or renew your spirit or, you know, the movie. <laughs> the, the, we all have that movie, movie that we go over and over. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We were, we were just having this conversation about the Titanic. And so <laughs> I think it's just sitting in my head as like this, as the thing, you know, and the scene of the, because I used to play violin where the, where the, where the band is playing as the ship is going down. And so that is very present. I bet if you asked me in another moment, it would it wouldn't be, you know, the the thing, but it is sitting here present right now. So I'll just I hear you. Yeah. And, yep. Absolutely. And it's because they they just lived in the moment, right? It was like here it that's true. We're, we're going down, and what we're gonna do, we're gonna go down playing. Beautiful. Mentors or teachers who have inspired you? Oh my goodness. Yeah, Alice Walker. I love Alice. We actually never talked about that, I but we know. have Alice as a friend, as yeah. a dear friend. Yes, yes. You know, it almost feels trite to say, but it, it is for sure. Alice has, uh, you know, really been a mentor, a teacher. Uh, Robert Gass is has been a, a beautiful mentor. He's a wonderful. Gloria Steinem. Um, I learned so much from Gloria, and I had a time in my life where we were, you know, in in space a lot together. And so. These, these are not, when I say these, for those of you that don't know, these are close relationships. And so I know that some of the folks are iconic um, and I have the gift of spending some times in my life with them. And so that has been really um, precious. I, I super love Resma Menicum, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands. We don't get to spend a lot of time. And I, and I feel like he's like brother from another mother like all day, I, I feel that about him. He's, he's truly like my brother from another mother. So I, I love him, um, you know, I love him, you know, from further than I want to be from him. And last but not least, a book, your favorite book that you go to often. Oh, my goodness. 
Um, I, I go to the Tao Te Ching, oddly enough. Um, I, yeah, the, I, the Tao Te Ching is sort of like, or the, and the I Ching, both. They're sort of like divination. I treat them like divination. I just like open them and I sit with them with the short phrases. And, and also what is called um, in Buddhism is kind of, sort of like a kind of Buddhist thing like that. It's um, the mind training slogans. I, I love them because they're these pith things that I can, that came from whenever they came from long ago. And I can drop in and say like, what does that mean now? I think they're kind of like my version of a Bible. Beautiful. Angel, I'm so grateful for you. This has been most profound conversation that will stay with me for a very, very long time, if not part of who I become in the future. Thank you. Thank you for this. It, this has been truly a gift for me. That was Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. To learn more about her new audio series, please visit go.revan.gl slash belonging dash offer. For transcripts and other resources from this episode, please go to www.findcenter.com slash redefined. You can follow Find Center on Instagram at find underscore center. You can follow me at Zainab Selby and you can email me questions about this podcast and your own transformative moments at redefined at findcenter.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week for another conversation about life's turning points and lessons learned. My guest will be the woman, the former presidential candidate and author, Marianne Williamson. Redefine is produced by me, Zainab Selby, along with Rob Corso, Casey Khan, and Howie Khan at Freetime Media. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Nikki Ford, Neil Goldman, Jen Tardif, Elijah Townsend, Amanda Graber, Carolyn Pincus, and Shira Johnston.